continue on in our series, Jesus Is, as we continue walking through the book of Hebrews. And tonight, we're talking about how Jesus is the holy place. So I know if you're like me, you come across those those passages in the Bible that you can read once, you can read twice, you can read for a third time, and then you eventually just say, yeah, I'm sure it means something, I'll go on. Uh, you just can't quite grasp it because it's just kind of out there, uh, particularly in the Old Testament. If you get bogged down in, in some of the um, books, Leviticus, um, just, man, numbers, it can be hard. But I'm telling you, uh, we have to approach this passage tonight, this hard text, um, knowing that God is going to do something amazing in our minds and our hearts. Because really, there's three ways we could approach this. You could look at it and say, you know what? It's just kind of confusing. It's talking about temple stuff, uh, Old Testament stuff. I know this is Hebrews, so we keep hearing the same terms. But like, eh, it's just not relevant. I'm going to move on. And that's obviously not the way to handle it. And then the, the way that you're going to be tempted to handle it is, let's be honest, this is how most of us do, is we say, you know what, it's about stuff that seems kind of weird and irrelevant to me, but God's eternal timeless truths are, are, are his timeless eternal truths. So I'm sure there's a little nugget there. Like, I'm just going to look for the nugget. There's something good I could take away from this. Is that how you normally read some of this hard stuff? I know that's the temptation. That's selling it short. We can't even go there. But there's a third place that I want to go tonight, and that is that God's word shows his progressive revelation to mankind that he is the God sovereign over every group of people at every time in history, and that he has shown himself in different ways to progressively show us the gospel 2,000 years ago, and that it, if we put ourselves in their shoes, in these Hebrews' shoes, a little rhyme there. Okay. If we put ourselves in their place, that we're going to be pointed to Jesus in such a way that our affections for him are going to be stirred, that we're going to understand the gospel in a new way, that we don't have to see some of God's word and say, you know what, it's irrelevant. No, it is incredibly powerful. But in order to do that, we've got to jump into the story. So I know you've been at work all day. I know you're tired. Uh, but we're going to have to jump in, and we're going to have to really pretend. We're going to have to put ourselves in their shoes. 1,500, excuse me, 2,000 years ago, 3,500 years ago, whatever it might be, we, we've got to jump back and pretend like, man, this is what it would have been like to come to the temple, and this is their experience. Because I'm telling you what, if you, if you put yourself there tonight, you're going to see some powerful, powerful truths of the gospel. So... Without further ado, let's jump on in. If you've got a Bible, we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 9, covering the first 14 verses. Now, uh, we're only going to cover, or excuse me, we're going to cover all 14 verses, but I'm going to park three times. Normally, uh, I like to park four or five times. I'm going to just park uh, three times, and the first time is going to be over half of the passage. So just know we're going to, we're going to park there for a little bit. But let's jump into the first seven verses. Hebrews 9, starting in verse 1. The author says, Now even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section in which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant. Verses 5 on through 7. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in detail. 
These preparations have thus been made. The priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but only once a year, and not without taking blood. All right, let's stop there. The first thing we see is the setup. So it's a whole bunch of temple stuff. Now, I, I know that this might bog you down for a second, but we got to jump in. We got to go through this world. Let me, um, let, me, let me just give you a brief history here of what we're talking about. When we talk about temple, tabernacle, all that good stuff. Now, the, this passage is referring specifically to the tent, the tabernacle that was set up. But let, let's, let's go back in time. Okay, so uh, Abraham, Isaac, Joseph, all those guys, great. Abraham, father of Israel, all that stuff, wonderful. We go... When we're talking that time frame, about 2000 BC, we're not talking about the temple. Okay, there was no temple, there was no tabernacle at that time. Okay, then they go through Egypt, they're enslaved for 400 years, they come out, and then you got Moses, and you got going into the promised land, judges, all that good stuff, Joshua. Now we're starting to get into the very first thing we see as God's place where he dwells on earth here, and that is the tabernacle. So remember Mount Sinai, we're given the law, we're given this first covenant that's referred to here, and so we're given this uh, specific design for a tabernacle. Basically, this is like a temple, but it's portable. So they can move it around. So they take it all through uh, the land in, in Canaan, they go through the promised land, it sets in a little place called Shiloh for a while, but then Shiloh gets destroyed, so then the tabernacle uh, around 1050 BC, it moves on, goes through some Philistinian uh, cities before it finally parks in Jerusalem. Okay, so we're going to be referring to that tabernacle. Now, what it looked like in a lot of ways was what the temples looked like. So then after that, you've got David's son Solomon creates what we have uh, known as the first temple. Okay, so there's two main temples in the Old Testament, one after another. So you start with the tabernacle. It's around for four or five hundred years. Then we move to Solomon. He builds this temple, and it's awesome, and it's big, and it's crazy, and it's wonderful. And we call this Solomon's temple or the first temple. Sacrifices are offered. This is great, good stuff. Then, fast forward a couple hundred more years, a few hundred more years, northern Israel is taken over by the Assyrians, so they're gone. That's the first 10 out of the 12 tribes of Israel. Now you just got Judah and another tribe, and they're called just Judah uh, or southern Israel. And in Jerusalem, this temple gets destroyed in 586 B.C., and so then the Babylonians, they ransack it and they destroy it. And so for 70 years, the Israelites are without a temple, so they don't have a way to sacrifice in Jerusalem. So for 70 years they go without it. But then we have these people, Ezra and Nehemiah. You remember them? So they come into play. And so the Persians are taken over after the Babylonians, and they get permission to rebuild this temple. So now we have the second temple built 70 years after the first one was destroyed. Okay? So now we have the second temple, and it goes on and on. It's a little bit smaller than the first one, but pretty cool. It goes on and on and on. And then 20 B.C., right before Jesus comes to earth, then you've got one of the King Herods, and he revamps it. He changes some things. And so the second temple is often called the Herod's temple. It's in that time frame. Then Jesus comes. He does what he does. And just 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, the second temple is destroyed in A.D. 70. So it's gone. And we don't have any more temples. In AD 90, the council in Jamnia, I know this is history, but I, I want it for anyone who, who's putting themselves there. Council of Jamnia, they've gone now 20 years without a temple, and the Jews get together and the rabbis have to decide, what do we do without a temple? And so they reinterpreted parts of the Old Testament to justify making sacrifices and doing different things in the Jewish religion, and they've been doing that for 2,000 years. 
and it's really sad. Jesus, after coming and doing what he did, what we're going to see tonight, God said, I'll give you a few more years, Jews, to jump on board. And we believe God hasn't forgotten his Jewish people. It's not all over yet. But that temple was destroyed, and he has not let them rebuild. So, everything we see then now in the first six verses, we're talking about all these details of the tabernacle. And here's what you need to know about it. All of these things were put together to show God's indwelling presence, his manifest presence in this place. It was put together like a house. You wonder, like, what are the details in here? Like, why do we even matter? Now, we can't cover every little thing or we would be here uh, we're talking about symbolism and what they mean. We'd be here all night. But so it's talking about this tent. And it says there's a first section, and Andy talked about this on Sunday, so I'm not going to go crazy detail. But there's, there's an area that everyone can be way out beyond the gates and then in the inner courts only the Jewish people could come in and then you have uh, this middle ground it's kind of like a living room all right and so the Jews um, they couldn't go in but the priests would go in on a regular uh, on a regular basis and perform their duties and you have things in there like a lampstand you have a place where there's bread you have you have all this different stuff that shows this is where God hangs out like this is the living room all right but then you got this other place called the Holy of Holies, and only one person, a high priest, there's only one high priest at a time, could go there once a year, and he had to come with blood to sacrifice for his own sin and the sins of the people. It's called the Day of Atonement. That'd be like the bedroom. Like, that's the most intimate part of this house. And so all these details are just showing God's power. You see this golden urn with manna. You see Aaron's staff uh, that budded, the tablets of the covenant. All these things are placed in here to show, like, this is God's house. This is where he dwells. It shows his power, his majesty. And then you see, of course, these cherubim over the mercy seat. This is the most intense, thick place where God's glory dwells, the mercy seat. And so what would happen on the Day of Atonement when they would come in with the high priest, he would sprinkle blood over this. The cherubim, they would be over the mercy seat. And, and, and so then blood would be sprinkled on that so that the people's sins would be atoned for. And the author says, well, we could go and talk about this all day long, but right now, we, I'm just going to leave it right there. But then you see in verse 7, now this is just the first half of verse 7, it says that that high priest would come in. I mean, could you picture, could you picture, like, actually being that high priest and coming in there and saying, like, I represent <laughs> the people here, and just, like, shaking, and you're bringing blood, knowing if you screw this up, if you're unholy or not clean in any way, shape, or form, like, you could just die right there. That's the crazy thing about God's presence in the tabernacle and the temples is that for some people, it represents death immediately. For other people, it represents life. And it all depends on whether you are as holy as the God who dwells there. And so these people, obviously not. It would have been a horrible way to exist around God. Like, just think about that. The most beautiful thing that you could possibly be around God himself, and like, you have to stay at a distance. What a way to exist. But this is their lives. They're, just, they're walking around, and they're just thinking, like, we can't, we can't be around God. But, like, we love him, and we want to be around him, but we can't be around him, and they're so at a distance all the time. It would have been huge to come in and say, now, temple is your body. Jesus is the high priest. We don't need all that. I mean, that, that would have wrecked their minds. That's not as easy to walk away from as it might think. When we think about this tabernacle, when we think about the temples, 
And we think about the holy place in God's presence. I think, uh, and this is a horrible example, but for most of us, uh, you know what it's like when you're growing up and you go into a friend's house and you're still kind of unsure about them and they're unsure about you and being in their living room is kind of weird, but like the thought of going in like their parents' bedroom would just be like so weird, right? Like that's just, you do not go in in their parents' bedroom. I remember when I was five years old and I was kind of a hermit because we grew up in Nowheresville, Kansas. We didn't have a, a ton of friends to go hang out with, but I remember after kindergarten one day, going out and hanging out with, with one of my buddies who lived on a ranch and had a big house, and I remember, I remember how weird it was being in the house, being in his living room. It was all just immaculate. And I remember we were playing this game. We were playing lions. I don't know what that means, but I just remember we were playing lions, and we were running around like lions. And, and, and I remember we were in the closet of his parents' bedroom. And I remember even at five years old having this awkwardness of thinking to myself, like, we shouldn't be here. Like, this is weird. Like, this is so weird. Like, I would have the same feelings at the age of 30 if I played lions in their bedroom now as I did at the age of five. Like, there's just something in us that knows when we don't belong. Like, we should not be here. And the Jewish people felt that all the time. How do we hear about this God who loves us and wants to dwell among us, yet we can't even be around him? They had to deal in the most tangible of ways with the fact that sin separates us from a holy, perfect God on a daily basis. We can talk about it, but like they literally felt the separation. They felt it. In the church, it's so easy for us to talk about. We have access to God. Come boldly to the throne, we say. We can talk, it doesn't matter who you are, you come in off the street Sunday morning and we say, hey, listen, you can have a relationship with Jesus, you can access God at any time. And it's like, yeah. Even as Christians, we just get so used to be like, yeah, that's awesome. But like, is it that awesome? No, because we've never lived in these people's reality. Like we've never seen our buddy walking with the Ark of the Covenant and then screwing up and slipping and touching something he shouldn't and he dies right there. We look at that and we say, that's mean. And they say, that's holiness, touching what's unclean. That was their reality. Are you comfortable with your sin? Like, are you sick over it? Are we taking for granted the access we have at any given moment to the God of the universe? Where you land on these issues probably tells you everything you need to know about the vitality of your spiritual walk. I remember a few years ago when I went to, uh, Tara and I went to Phoenix, Arizona. We lived in Utah, and K-State was playing a football game down there versus Oregon, a big bowl game. Um, won't even tell you how it went, but we didn't do well. But we had all these K-State fans. You know, it's known K-State fans travel for bowl games. It's amazing. It's awesome. They go cross state lines and bring the biggest herds of humans. You can't, you know, like, it's just great. And it was pretty cool. I remember we went down and saw the Grand Canyon. And on this January day, uh, it was packed full of purple. To see purple all over the Grand Canyon, like, it was cool. But I'm in Utah, of course, so I don't see K-State people anywhere at all. And so I'm just blown away. Like all of a sudden, now it's K-State people everywhere, purple everywhere. But within a day or two, I was already sick and tired of it. 
as the traffic in downtown Phoenix, getting to the, the pep rally and different events, as all these Kansas license plates, all these purple-clad fans. And I was so thankful just a day or two earlier to be around these people. I felt like they were bringing home to me. And now I'm just like, eh, it's just a traffic jam. We went to the pep rally in downtown Phoenix, and we went to a, a parking garage. And, of course, there's hundreds and probably thousands of K-State fans everywhere. And so we just park, and we get out, we start walking, and people are everywhere. And, and we had to get down to um, the ground level. And so up in this parking garage, Tara and I were trying to figure out where to go, but we weren't really thinking. I mean, we were just like, oh, there's people everywhere, and I was starting to have social anxiety, don't like it. Um, but we saw a corridor um, to, to maybe go down, and, and so uh, I went in, opened this door, and it looked like we were going to have a stairway. We went in and found that the stairway didn't go down. It went up, but it didn't go down. And so Tara, we, we sh she walked in behind me. We shut the door, and I said, oh, turn around, go out. <coughs> Doors locked. I was like, that's weird. Thousands of people around. Why would they lock a parking garage, like, stairway thing? So then I, I run up to the second floor, And I freak out, as it has not taken me long to see the pattern. And we're the only two in here. And Tara's like, oh, no, what's happening? And I'm like, it's locked. And I, f I freak out. And I, I remember I turned around, and, and I saw on the wall uh, the glass case with, like, some hose. And I think there might have been an axe or something in it and for the firefighters. And I remember looking at it, and I do this number, because I'm about to break through this thing, because I'm I'm just like, oh, my gosh, we are locked in here. And Tara's like, no, don't do it. And I'm just like, ah, I don't know what to do. And I just dart up the stairs, locked, dart up the stairs, locked, dart up the stairs, locked. Tara's running behind me. And we're just freaking out. Like, we just got locked in. We get to the very top, and the door's unlocked. So we're out, but now we're six stories above where we were. <laughs> 36 hours I was with those people. I was in awe at first. Man, this is great fun. How amazing is it? This isn't an everyday opportunity. But how quickly, when you are separated... Do you find yourself scratching and clawing to get back that freedom? To get back to being around those you want to be around? We don't feel that as believers, and thank God we don't. That our sin will not separate us from God. Does it mess up your fellowship? Oh yeah, sure. But that through Jesus and the blood, <laughs> he makes us in proximity one distance from him, and that is near, and that is in, and it doesn't change. But I'm telling you what, don't ever, 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 and I'm preaching to myself, take for granted this access, because there's a group of people that lived thousands of years and dreamed of what we have. Dreamed of it. The rest of verse 7 and then through 10, it says, which he offers, so this is the high priest coming in once a year, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. 
but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. All right, next thing we see is that it still wasn't good enough. So you've got the temple, you've got the tabernacle, you've got the sacrificial system, like, right, this isn't very fun, but, like, this is what we have in play, and it's still not good enough. It's still not good enough. Uh, some people, when you look back at the Old Testament, and be honest, if this is you, you hear about the sacrificial system, and you think, yeah, I mean, they had to sacrifice lambs and stuff, but, like, they at least got the job done, right? No! No! Show me in the Old Testament where it says the intentional rebellion, the intentional sin of the people was atoned for by the blood of the animals. The sacrificial system and the blood, it was for the unintentional sins of the people, those sins that were done in ignorance. The day of atonement, remember the scapegoat, all that stuff that would happen, that was done for the sins of the people and they would pray that everything we don't know about that's happened. But what about the sins done in rebellion? How do you atone for that? You'll see in the Old Testament, God's system for this was very similar to actually what we do now. It was to repent, to confess to God and to repent. That he would have mercy, but like you had to deal with God when it came to your rebellious heart. You couldn't just be like, you know what, this was done in rebellion. I knew I shouldn't have done it, but I did it. I'm going to go down, have the priest sacrifice an animal, and I'll be good to go. Like that's not, that, that was not happening. That wasn't happening. It was for the unintentional sins of the people. And, and so, <laughs> that really makes you feel like this whole sacrificial system isn't good enough. Because how many of our sins are done fully aware that we should not be doing what we're doing? We all have unintentional, ignorant sins, things we don't even know we're doing, like, oh, I'm sure I messed up today. But more times than not, we know what we shouldn't be doing. So basically, it's saying, hey, and this is important, verse 7, or excuse me, verse 8 says, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way, so this author, he's affirming, this is just a side note, but he's affirming the Old Testament is inspired by God, like it's God's word. The Holy Spirit says, like this is what the Holy Spirit was doing in this. It says that the holy place is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing. So as long as the temple, as long as the tabernacle, as long as the priests are doing what they do, as long as that happens, we are going to be separated. And this is the whole, this is the dispensation of this time. This is, this is the time period. It can be summed up as a group of people, God's people, that were separated by sin, like we were at a distance. And he's saying, as long as we have the temple, the tabernacle, as long as we're doing all that stuff, then it's still, you're not going to be able to have access to the holy place. And then it goes on to say, in verses 9 and 10, that everything they did, all of this stuff, from the incense to the blood and the lamb and shed, like all of it, it's just ceremonial cleansings. In the sense that it could make you physically clean, but it could never take away the mental agni- the, the mental torment of your sin. Like there's a lack of peace of mind going on in the Old Testament. Again, it wasn't as if God stood by and just didn't have mercy. But you can imagine 
They're like, man, I'm doing all this stuff and the priests offered sacrifices and I feel I'm physically clean, so it doesn't mean I'm getting cast out uh, of our community. I can still hang out with you guys, but like I still know what I've done. And the agony. And then it says, these regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. Now, I know uh, if you're reformed or if you're even in that, close to that camp, you're thinking reformation, what? Martin Luther, Ulrich Zwingli, you're thinking that kind of reformation. We're not talking that kind of reformation. We're talking about the present age, which is the gospel 2,000 years ago. And this Greek word for reformation, some of your translations might say uh, order, and it's only used here. The Greek word is only used in the New Testament here, and basically it means to get in a line with, to align with. And so it's saying, hey, God knows what's going on. He gave the sacrificial system, but like he's going to change something. It's all going to change. And it's going to be a setting straight. Man, this unintentional sin thing, this would have brought, I, I think this would have just been like a hopelessness in the community. How many of us would have just been like, you know what? I could do this all day long, but I know I'm still going to be in mental agony over my mistakes this isn't even worth it. This isn't even worth it. And you say, well, why then would the Hebrews, now that we're talking 20, 30 years after Jesus died and was resurrected, this book of Hebrews is now written. They know all about it. They're living in its reality to some extent. The author's telling them, like, why would you go back to this old thing? And we're sitting here thinking, yeah, why would they go back to the, the Mosaic law? Like, why? But we could say that about anyone who's fallen into any kind of bondage, right? until you're in their shoes, you don't realize. Because we see it and we say, well, that's hopeless. Well, for them, they had a love-hate relationship with the law. They loved it because it's God's perfect, holy law, and it proclaimed there'd be a Messiah coming one day, but they hated it because they could not be holy and perfect. And so it just pointed out their sin and their need for Messiah all the time. I've spit like five times now. I'm glad no one's in the front row. <laughs> and so it's this love-hate relationship, and you say, why would they even cling to that hope? Why would they even cling to it? Well, to them, a little bit of hope is better than no hope at all. But biblically, if it can't fulfill everything we need, it's incomplete. It's kind of like clinging to the side of a cliff. Nobody, unless you're crazy, wakes up and says, you know what, today I'm just going to make the choice to go cling to the side of a cliff. Like I said, unless you're crazy. But all of a sudden, if you're standing there and you start slipping and falling and, and clinging to the side of a cliff, all of a sudden becomes your best option. It's not as crazy as an option as it used to be. And we all do this. We all, we all cling to things and we, we put our hope in things and we talk about this week in and week out. Things that <laughs> offer at best temporary relief. And so we stay clinging to the side of the cliff, not wanting to fall down, but knowing we can't pull ourselves up according to this. And so we're just stuck. And we live in that torment. Even as believers, we do it. We do it all the time. I've told this story many times before, although it's taken a twist as of recent events, but I remember, I remember in Utah, 
There's a gal in the church who had an ex-husband who I didn't know him very well, but she told him, she said, you got to come talk to the pastor. And he came and he was just in torment. He said, my new wife just left me, took the kid, took the money. I'm addicted to drugs. I've been addicted to drugs. I've been selling drugs. There's a mafia in Salt Lake City that's coming after me. I've just had a horrible life. I don't know what to do. And he explained all of his history about how he, via Ouija board when he was 11 or 12, had asked the devil to come and possess him. And he felt like he was the devil's uh, minion, essentially, ever since then and that those closest to him mysteriously died over the years and he just knew like I'm next I'm next I'm next I'm gonna die like I've just had evil over me my entire life he even showed me this big tattoo that covered his back that was half angel half demon and he said I'm stuck somewhere in between and I shared the gospel as plainly but as passionately as I could that day And I knew I could see in his eyes, he knew this is the way out. He knew it as he bawled like a baby. And he said all the things you're supposed to say. I believe. I saw him starting a relationship with God today. Like everything I hoped he would say, like he he says, but I could tell him. I could tell, I could tell there was bondage and it was pulling him back because he only knew life a certain way. And it's so easy. When he left, and I'm thinking to myself, why would he go back to that stuff? Like, I don't, it's 50-50 in my mind what he's going to choose to do. And it's so easy to stand on the outside and say, yeah, there's, what is he thinking? There's no way I would go back to that stuff. But I'm telling you what, you put yourself in their shoes. And this is not justifying their behavior, but you put yourself in your shoes. These people, <laughs> and by these people I'm saying us, don't fall into this stuff and stay in it because they don't have anything better to do. They find temporary relief and pleasure from the pain And although they know this is not the right path and it's going to lead me to destruction, a little bit of temporary pleasure is better than nothing at all. I heard he went back and forth, but I was just like, commit, man, commit, commit. A couple months ago, he finally got arrested again. He killed himself. And it's easy to sit back and say, why are you clinging to that cliff? When you can fall into the arms of Jesus, it takes faith. But we do it all the time. There's young ladies probably in this room, if not in this room, I know in this church and maybe listening to this podcast, there's young men here in this room or in this church that are thinking to themselves, I don't want to be lonely, I want to be married. And I know I shouldn't date a non-believer and I know I shouldn't do this, but like, oh, the temptation is there. And you know every Christian friend would say, don't date a non-believer, how could you? But you didn't get that way overnight. You dated someone in high school and you fell in love and you felt real genuine love. And then you felt disaster and you experienced bad stuff and you knew that is not the way to go. But when you, in your lonely moments, think back to that, you think, but there was something kind of good. And so the temptation stays. We say, well, you should not get into credit card debt. You should not, man, stay away financially. Don't fall into debt. And we got student loan debt and we got house payments and we got all this debt. But then you get that first credit card and you got the $1,000 limit. And all of a sudden, you know, you're struggling and you're sick and tired of being poor. And when you make that swipe, you know, hey, listen, as long as it's not maxed out, like this is a little bit of relief from eating the same old dumpy cafeteria food over and over and over. And you just go a little bit further in. And we could rattle off the lists that we all have. Jesus says the road is wide that leads to destruction and many will follow it. But I'm telling you also, 
this wide road is littered with temporary relief. And most of us know the things we cling to outside of Jesus Christ, they are not the right path, but boy, they offer temporary relief. As I wrote part of this this morning and in my self-righteousness, I was thinking, what are the people struggling with? What could I preach that might help the people? God revealed to me three ways I was cheating on Jesus just this very last day or so that I didn't even think, but I thought, you want to know what Pastor Ryan might fall into? Like, here's three specific ways, and they all just happen to happen in the same night. I went home from work yesterday discouraged and depressed. You have one thing that leads to another in pastoral ministry, and it's not just one major thing, but it's just like anything else in life. You get beat down, you get worn down, you feel spiritually depleted, and you got to make decisions, and people hate you, and that just feels fun, right? And I was sitting at home, and Tara was looking at me, and she's like, you act like you'd rather be dead than to be with me and Silas. I was looking out the window, I was actually thinking about death. And I was thinking to myself, of course, I love my son and wife. But I was thinking to myself, right now, if all this goes the way that it could go, I would rather be dead than to serve as a pastor. And I was just thinking that to myself. And I knew, I knew it was, it was sin and it was rebellion to not take those thoughts captive. And I knew I needed to take them straight to Jesus right then. I needed to lean on him. But all of a sudden, those mistresses start coming up. You don't recognize them a lot of times. I didn't recognize them until this morning. I started thinking about this and God revealed my own sin. First one, boom, go work on the house. 30 minutes before it gets dark last night, all of a sudden, instead of leaning on Jesus, I'm 16 feet up in the air painting the fascia board of my garage because it was just the perfect time to, right? No, I didn't want to deal with how I was feeling. So then I come in from that, and I go to mistress number two, and that is, let's go, let's plan some hiking adventure, some weekend adventure, let's take Silas and go see bears and wolves and snakes and all the fun things in the world, like, let's go do something, let's plan our next vacation, it's going to be in a year, it doesn't matter, let's just go, to, so I'm doing research, Michigan and Texas and all these places, I don't really want to go, but I just don't want to be right here in my own mind right now, dealing with what i got to deal with, and I find myself cheating. All the while, Jesus tugging me back, pulling me back. By the time we're about to go to bed, mistress number three comes. Didn't even know it, but you got old Parks and Rec on Amazon Prime. You could zone out watching that stupid show for hours at a time. And, I, and Tara's like, I'm just tired. I want to go to bed. But I'm just thinking, I don't want to even think right now. I just, I just want to zone out. But the way the Lord does it, he didn't give up on me. And all night long, I'm thinking and dreaming about God. And I'm, I'm not at rest. And I'm just struggling. And, and I take it to God. And I find what I can only find in him. And I've got to repent. I'm telling you what, we all have these things we're clinging to. What are you clinging to? Jesus is saying, stop clinging to the side of the mountain. It takes faith, but I'm putting solid ground under you. If you take a step, it's easy to say, why in the world would they want to go back to this law? It was their only hope, but there's a hope that's better than that. Last but not least, Hebrews chapter 9, 
verses 11 through 14. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through, this is big, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works, that is sin, from dead works to serve the living God. Oh, this is important. So it's still not good enough with the old sacrifices, but Jesus is good enough. This is, this is awesome. So now we're switching temples, right? So this, all of a sudden, this stuff means a little bit more than it did an hour ago. We're switching from talking about earthly stuff to a heavenly one. Remember, the stuff we had on earth was all from design that God had in heaven. He says, I want you to make the tabernacle, the temple, exactly how I give you design. Because there's a replica that's better. There's the original thing in heaven. And so Jesus enters into this new one better. He doesn't, just, he doesn't come and do what the high priests do here on earth. He enters a heavenly one, and he invites us into it. So this is much better than the one on earth. This is never going to perish. It's amazing. And he enters into the holy place. Not by the means of blood of animals and all these other things or the sprinkling of the ashes of a heifer and all that stuff. If you thought that was good and it cleansed you ceremonially, it made your body clean so that you didn't have to leave the camp of the Israelites like you think that's good. How much more when the perfect holy God of the universe sacrifices his own blood? It can't get any more holy. It can't get any more pure than that. What happens when he dies for you? Oh, man, this would have changed things. And then it says, oh, that he offered himself without blemish, without blemish to purify. Oh, this is huge. To purify our conscience from dead works. Oh, this is huge. To serve the living God. Oh, this is, this is good stuff. You got to stay with me for just a little bit longer because this is, this is good, good stuff. So we celebrate all the time uh, modernity. We, we celebrate our progressive society. And we all think, man, in, in 2015, the world is just, it sounds odd, but remember when it comes to technology, the world is just getting better. We're just progressing. We got more technology, new stuff all the time. You look at what's happened with the industrial revolution. You look 100 years, 200 years ago, like we're just moving on forward. Like what are we going to have? We have access to anyone and everyone at any time through our technology. But until now, like we still, we still, throughout all these technology (laughs) advancements, we still cannot clear someone's conscience. We can't do nothing. For someone's conscience, we can have access to anyone wherever we want in this world. We still cannot make our own access to God. Oh, but there is a way. There is a much better way. You can picture, okay, when these priests, again, put yourself there, when they go to the temple, when they go to the tabernacle, there would be sometimes hundreds, thousands of Jewish people outside praying for them, praying for them. If you've ever seen the Vatican when they elect a new pope or whatnot, uh, they have the old smoke signals that come out, and people are just watching, and there, you know, millions of people are watching for the smoke signals. They, want to, they know something's happening in there, and, and they want to know. You can picture them sitting outside praying for the priest, knowing they're in there serving like, wow. 
This is amazing. Little boys would have been like, wow, one day maybe like I could serve God. And that would be amazing. Like, could you picture serving the way priests get to serve? And they get to go in a place that I know I'll never be able to get to go to. Like, they just knew that. Little boys and girls, they knew, I'll never go in there. Yet in there is where my hope is. But I can't go. And so they're watching, they know, man, this is the day, and the high priest goes in, and if, and, if, and if you were on earth, and a high priest went into the hole, and you knew outside, like, man, what's going on? Let's just keep praying, something's going on, and there's something good. If they didn't come out after a while, what would you think? you think they screwed up. They're dead. They dropped dead because they were not clean. Somehow something went wrong, they dropped dead. And yet Jesus, Jesus enters into this heavenly tabernacle by his death. He goes in and he breaks it open and says, y'all can come in. Like you are welcome to come in. And as we see in the gospels, when he dies on earth and it says the veil is torn, the curtain is torn in half. If you could picture the, the craziness of a priest coming out and saying, hey, everybody, I know you've been praying. I know you've been doing this your whole life coming out here, but you can't come in. Today is your lucky day. You could come in. Could you picture them looking around saying, no, we know we don't belong. Like, we know our role. We don't belong in there. We don't, we don't, <laughs> we do not go in there. You got to trust who says you can come in. Otherwise, you know you're dead instantly. Oh, man. And this author is saying, through Jesus, you could actually come in. But not just an earthly temple, a much better temple, a heavenly temple. Oh, this would have been huge. And it would have been awesome to just be with him, but to serve, to be in access of his presence like a priest to serve, that would have been amazing. We see in Ephesians 2 that we don't serve so that God loves us. We are saved to serve him. And you could picture like this idea of like not only do I get to be in the presence of God, I get to serve him like, like mama, daddy, I get to serve God. Like this is an honor. This is amazing to them. But yet there's people here tonight, I'm almost sure of it, who if I says, do you trust Jesus' blood to cover you, to atone for your sins? And we'll talk more about blood and atonement and all that fun stuff next week. But do you trust him to cover you so that you can enter this heavenly tabernacle? And most of you would probably say, yeah. And it takes faith, but unless you're face-to-face -face with going to that tabernacle right at this second, you don't really have to, like, really, really, really believe it, right? I mean, you do, but in your mind you don't. But then if I said, you know what? So you trust him, his blood, to, to save you, and, and so you get access to him. Do you trust his blood to atone so that you can serve him as a major part of his plan on earth right now, even in this church? Now it's tangible. Now it's right in front of your face. And that's where we start to have these thoughts like, man, my sin, my mistakes, my secret stuff, the hidden stuff, the past stuff. I don't think I could really play like a major role. I don't even know how he could use me. I wanted to talk to, to pastor so-and-so about, you know, helping out with the kids, but I don't even feel like I could be with the kids. I don't feel like I could serve there. I don't feel like I could serve anywhere. I don't, and I definitely can't serve outside these four walls. Like, uh, that's for some people to do, but I just, God can't use me. And why do we think that? Because we don't have a clear conscience. 
Because our conscience is our mind's ability to take what our moral code is and our behavior and line them up. And if it doesn't line up, we have a guilty conscience. And so we don't see that he wants us, that he could use us, that he says you're worthy to serve because we just don't have a clear conscience. And it's saying, listen, there's a reformation coming. It's going to change everything. It's going to set in line where God's perfect holy son, Jesus, and his perfect behavior and his perfect law are going to match up perfectly. And he's going to give you that perfection so that when the father sees you, he sees the work of the son on the cross. And he says, you are worthy and you can never live in this torment anymore as my children. You should not live in this torment that says, I'm not worthy. I'm not good enough. I'm not okay. Because you know what? That's true, but it's not true. It's true that you in and of yourself are not, but Jesus, through his work on the cross, has made it so that you are. And the Reformation takes place. What's going on that's muddying up your conscience tonight? What do you have that you think, you know what, I know God can forgive some things, but he can't forgive this. What's happened today? The way you treated your coworker, the way you had anger and malice and slander and whatever towards those around you in the line at the bank. Like what, what happened today that you think to yourself, I just am guilty. His sacrifice was enough. The only way he wants you to live in this life as a believer is with a rest that only comes from his finished work. But if you want to rest in Christ, if you want, if you want a peace of mind that only comes from Christ, you've got to abide by faith in Jesus. Are we abiding in Jesus? And do we have peace of mind? Jesus doesn't just give us access to the holy place. He is the holy place. You are his temple. And his presence is in us. Let's pray.